Hello and welcome back to Pictorial on Relay FM. I'm Quinn Rose and I didn't go to art school, but I still love to learn about art and so I do it here every episode. And I'm Betty. I also didn't go to art school, but I also love learning about art and today I'm going to be talking about a bunch of people who also never went to art school but are amazing anyway. Ooh, my favorite. Yeah, um, I think this is quite a fitting topic for us because, yeah, again, like we're quite often talking about what it's like to be outside of the art world. And these people that we're going to get into today are very much or at least used to be very much um, outside of the mainstream art world. They are awesome, in my opinion, anyway. And hopefully I can help convince everybody else that's the case, too. (laughs) So who are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about a group of artists that's collectively known as the Florida Highwaymen, or simply known as the Highwaymen. Now, the caveat is they weren't all men. One of them was a woman. Um, so, but anyway, this was, this was the name that was, they they didn't name themselves this. Somebody else kind of gave them that name. I'll get into that sort of what when I go through their origins. Um, but before I uh, get into it, um, have you have you heard of these people before? Um, or or is this like, totally and, and it's totally okay if you haven't because again, these people are not mainstream. Yeah, I have not heard of these artists before. Really excited to hear more about them. And especially like how they got their name if they didn't name themselves that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I guess before I get started, um, I, I popped a link in the show notes, which um, is an example of uh, one of one of the artists paintings. And th- there's a diverse amount of styles. But I, I say this painting is kind of representative of the type of work they were creating. And I just wanted to get your kind of initial reaction on like what you think of this this painting yeah this is a pretty straightforward painting i would say Um, it's fairly realistic i think at first glance you might think this is a photo Um, but it is a, a landscape painting of a sunset the sky is gorgeous. Uh, There's lots of orange and red in the clouds, um, but it's over the top of a lake with uh, lots of trees peeking out of the lake. And it's just this really pretty nature painting. Um, Yeah, so this is uh, this is actually a untitled and undated painting by one of the high women uh, called Harold Newton. And it's, um, as far as we know, it's kind of like a typical Florida backcountry sunset scene on the waterfront. Um, And it is very beautiful. And it um, apparently, like I've been to Florida a few times, but according to what I've looked up, uh, if you live in Florida, especially if you live sort of in the more, I guess, like country rural side of Florida, more so between the 50s and the 70s, this would have been like a typical sunset scene that you could see like outside of your house or you know if you lived on the waterfront and so but it's obviously painted in kind of like a more vivid striking type of way Hmm. anyway so i'll kind of um give a overview um about these artists so um so yeah so the highwayman is composed of 26 artists at least officially um and 25 of them are men and one of them is a woman um and they're 
basically known for painting Florida's landscapes. They started doing it in the 1950s, um, but they kind of did that prolifically until the 1970s, which is kind of when they they, uh, dropped off. But then these artists started creating works again from the 90s all the way up until now. They created all kinds of paintings, um, but mostly... Uh, it's described kind of as paintings of like undisturbed wilderness, like palm trees and, you know, like coastal waters, marshes, like ocean waves, tropical sunsets, similar to the painting I just showed you. Yeah, a lot of paintings that depict uh, Florida's uh, landscape. And uh, one thing that's interesting is um, apparently a lot of the landscapes in these paintings have actually largely disappeared over the years because of urban development. And so like in a way, it's kind of like a documentation of what Florida used to look like, but unfortunately no longer in many cases because humans. Um, so these paintings are like, I'll say now, like they're tremendously popular. Sort of when you first looked at it, you can kind of see why in a way, because it is quite beautiful. And it probably is also interesting to a lot of people because it does depict these landscapes that no longer exist. There's more interesting aspects of these artists than just the subject matter. They, they were really pro prolific. Um, there's an estimated 200,000 works that um, were just created between the 1950s and 70s. And since then, they've created even more. What I should probably mention <laughs> that I haven't yet is um, all of these artists are Black. Um, and they when they were painting these artworks at the time, all of them were rejected from any galleries or any places that's like a traditional art institution. So they had to basically sell their own art themselves in order to, you know, get these works out there. It wasn't until the 90s when like a series of publications in these pretty prominent art magazines were written about them um, that they became more widely known outside of Florida. And the person who designated the highwayman high name to them is this writer called Jim Finch. And the reason he called them the Florida highwaymen is one, it's probably just like a really catchy title, kind of like you mentioned earlier. Like it's it's like people are like, oh, like what's that? But yeah. it's also literally because they drove up and down the Florida highways selling their paintings. Like oh. I like I-95 or like Highway One or whatever, these like these major highways. And apparently they were just like they had their cars, like were just pulling people over, I'm assuming, and uh selling their works. So that's kind of a gist of um, of who they are. But what what I do want to talk about and get into a little bit is how they became so popular. Like it, it really was, they, they had to overcome a lot <laughs> in order to like make a living and get their artworks out there because of the location as well as the era they were living in at the time. This is such a fascinating little piece of history and especially the breakdown of where their name actually came from and them actually like selling paintings on the highway is so fascinating and I'm also like I'm very interested to hear about how 
this became a kind of a formalized group because I was I was surprised to hear you say this is like 25 people because that's a lot more than I was expecting. And I'm very curious to and especially like this isn't just like an art style or whatever, like this is a connected group of people. And so I'm very interested to hear about like how they connected with each other and how this group became formalized, like what defines someone as a member of the Florida Highwaymen. You actually asked a really great question. And um, what I'll say kind of off the bat, like before I get into their their origins, is that they would they, themselves consider themselves not formalized. They would just say, we're just a group okay. of people who are friends who happen to know each other and painted together and helped each other sell art. Um, and the designation of exactly who these 26 people are, again, came from an outside source, like a uh, so similarly to Jim Finch, who designated them as the highwaymen, um, this writer named Gary Monroe uh, did like, extensive research into these artists, and he was the one who determined who the 26 people are. And actually, over the years, there's been other people as well as the artists themselves who either dispute to say they shouldn't be on the list or other people should be on the list. Um, but ah. like all things... Um, it's vague and it's, it's difficult to um, determine, you know, exactly who's right and who's wrong because really they're kind of just like a loose group of people who kind of like met up by chance and then uh, ended up becoming artists. Wow. Okay. Interesting. I Like, of course, I mean, all things are always messier than they are in the headlines, but it does make a lot of sense that the actual truth of the matter is, is a little messier than perhaps some of people on the outside wanted it to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the gist of the origins of how they started as a group of artists, a group of painters, is that in the early 1950s, um, there was this kid, like a 14-year-old kid named Alfred Hare. Uh, somehow he got to know this really well-known painter called A.E. Bean. Uh, Bacchus, who was a la like a professionally trained landscape painter, and um, they were they were I think they were friends, and then um, so Bacchus ended up kind of mentoring uh, or. He saw the talent in Alfred Hare in terms of like, you know, that he thinks he's, uh, even though he was a 14-year-old kid, he had a talent for painting. So um, he kind of mentored Hare into like landscape painting practices. And apparently Hare was also friends with this other guy uh, who was the person who painted the painting in the beginning I showed you um, called Harriet Newton, um, who also trained under Bacchus. So the two of them are probably the only people in this group of 26 people who you could say had any like level of professional training, but it's not formal. Like it's not like they went to a art school because um, they probably couldn't afford to and also wouldn't be accepted at the time anyway. But it just so happens they knew this guy who was a landscape painter who was a really nice person who would teach them how to paint. This was kind of how like the two of them sort of started this group, although they didn't originally intend for it to be a group. They kind of just started painting and were like, hey, let's sell our art. It just so happens that Alfred Hare, like not only was he um, somebody who like eventually became a really good painter, um, he also throughout this entire thing was proven to be just like a really good businessman um, in terms of like you know, how to sell and promote art. Basically, what happened is he just ended up hiring a bunch of people to help him with things like frame making, um, like, you know, 
painting and like selling and then eventually the group grew larger and larger and all of them were like painting and selling art um you know by like the 60s and 70s wow okay as I mentioned before, um, so this was during what um, is known as the Jim Crow era in the South. And um, at the time, most African-Americans, they worked in places like citrus groves and tomato fields and factories. And um, I believe most of these artists themselves uh, worked in, in places like the groves and the fields. And, you know, they were making like very minimum, not even minimum, very low wages, basically, that were, that basically was very difficult to make, uh, for them to make a living. And a lot of them decided to take up painting because this was an additional way to make money and possibly a way for them to get out of like, you know, doing very terribly difficult manual labor in horrid conditions while being paid next to nothing. But anyway, so because they um, they couldn't they couldn't sell art in traditional institutions or libraries, as I mentioned before, they sold their art um, on the highway. Um, but what it is is that they they sold their art for like really low prices. So for instance, like um, Bacchus, their um, teacher, like he would sell his paintings for two hundred and fifty dollars, but they would only sell their, like theirs for twenty five dollars. But in order to make up the difference they basically just painted prolifically like nonstop and they they did a bunch of like I, I believe it was hair who kind of like pioneered a bunch of like techniques um like he had this uh technique called fast painting where he kind of created an assembly line technique where he would pin up like 20 boards uh in uh his backyard and then he would mix one color at a time and then he he would like go to the boards and just paint skies with like blue and then he would just paint the ground with whatever the ground color is and then he would go through and just paint the trees um and and he would also do this really fast similar to how impressionists do it it kind of it became this like this like assembly line mechanism and then as i mentioned before eventually he got like his wife and his family members his brother-in-law his friends to become a part of this assembly line, you know, so that they can basically churn out like 20 to 100 paintings a day, depending on how many people showed up to help. That is so smart. And I man, I could just visualize that I would love to see like footage of um, that process. Really interesting. And and again, like, um, and, and in addition to that, like, he was, um, he was using like cheap material, apparently, all the paints were, all the paintings were oil paint, but they were painted on this type of board called Upson board, which um, is a medium density fiber board used for like in, in buildings, but but it's really cheap. And of course, it's easy to paint on as well. So and then apparently, um, they also made their own frames. Uh, they would use crown molding again from like leftover construction material um, and just like these like really cheap like wood scrapped wood pieces that they would salvage to to make these paintings. So so it's like the combination of cheap material and just incredibly efficient labor <laughs> that like made it so that they basically produced probably something like 10 times or more as many paintings as like a traditional painter so that they make up for the difference of the fact that they're selling their art for one-tenth the price. 
I put three examples of artworks that they were doing like back in the back in the 60s when they were doing this fast painting process. Um, like the first one is by Alfred Hare. So, you know, kind of like the de facto leader of the group. Um, the second one is by actually his brother-in-law, who's called Carnell Smith. And then the third one is by Marianne Carroll, who's the, the only female member of the group. I think the thing that I think is interesting to to realize is that even though they were doing these like kind of fast assembly line processes, that seems like they're, you know, kind of like it sounds like kind of like they're cheating the process. But the thing is, these artworks, at least from what I can see, came out all came out beautifully. And like apparently, even though he was he was doing them in a systematic way, all of these paintings came out like unique, like there was no two works that looked the same. And it was kind of a way for them to explore their creativity as well. I'm not sure like what your opinion is, like some of these are more like impressionistic and rougher than others. But I look at these and I'm like, I cannot believe these were done. 20 of these were churned out a day because I couldn't do one of these if I had like six months. (laughs) Yeah, I fully feel like you're punking me right now. Like it is... (laughs) It, so we look at the the first one is another sunset, or I guess it could be sunrise, but I'm assuming it's sunset because I never see the sunrise. But anyway, um, <laughs> over uh, the beach on the ocean. The second one is more impressionistic, um, and it's like of a little house on a beach with palm trees. And then the third one um, is, I think, my favorite of these three. It's so cool looking. It's like uh, you have this tree on uh, – it's it's more vertical painting and there's this tree c- coming up the right side of the painting kind of creeping up around the top right-hand corner. Looking past the tree, you have the site of a, a lake and it looks like it might be kind of like a nighttime shot where the moon is shining in the sky. It's so cool looking. And even with the middle one, which I do say is more impressionist than the other two – there's still an incredible amount of detail in all of them. And in, in these pictures that you sent me, like you can, especially with the uh, the link to the um, first beach painting, you can zoom right up into these brushstrokes and it creates a gorgeous level of detail and texture in this painting that if you told me this took, you know, full I don't know how long paintings take to do. I was about to like say, oh, this took like a full week. And I'm like, is that a long time for a painting? A full month, maybe? I am not an artist. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I would believe you if you told me this took a long time to paint. It feels so much more unbelievable to say this was done in an assembly line of 20 a day. <laughs> yeah. And I think like some of these probably took longer than others. But the point is like these as like as far as I can tell, like in my research, most of these were done in like less than a day. Like maybe 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 some of the more complex ones took longer, but because um, I, I I read even that one of the group's members, um, whose name is Al Black, he said he was like selling some of these artworks while they were while the paint was still wet like oh my gosh (laughs) like they would paint 20 in a day and give it to al and like he would put in his car and because they used these like construction crown moldings he could stack them while the paint's drying um and and yeah and like he would he would go and like sell all of them what's interesting is uh, i i do actually also agree like my favorite out of these three is probably the one the one you 
described that nighttime one with the tree peeking over the side. That one is by Marianne Carroll. And I'm not just biased because she's the only woman, but I do think she probably has some of the best paintings out of like, I mean, they're all amazing, but um, hers, I think, are especially gorgeous. Mary Ann Carroll, like she was never formally trained. She apparently always loved drawing. And she met um, Harold Newton. And apparently the story is she, Harold Newton also painted on his car. And she like, I came across him one day and I was like, oh, I like the flames you drew on your car. And Newton's like, are, are like, oh, sorry, I like the flames on your car. And Newton was like, oh, I drew it myself. Do you want to learn like how to paint <laughs> and then he kind of just like you know taught her and according like according to the sources i read after like within weeks she was like painting and then like selling selling art <laughs> so she had seven children and she was a single mother so she also was one of these people i think she immediately was like i need to th- this is a way to make money and this is a way for me you know to be able to support my family so it's probably also why she was like i am just going to churn out as many of these paintings as possible so i can sell as many as possible wow i'm glad that she found uh this collective and i mean but it, it couldn't have been easy to be the only woman in this sort of uh in this collective and so i admire her for being able to hold her own and to establish herself among that we definitely don't have time to get into all 26 artists um but the stories of almost all of these artists and how they became how they started painting are all really interesting that second picture um of the the impressionistic one of the house uh is uh, like I mentioned, is by Carnell Smith, who's Alfred Hare's brother-in-law. And he he started with um, Hare was just like, hey, can you help me just paint the backgrounds? Like, it's really easy. You just do the sky and the water. You just paint like swaths of blue. Um, and he, so he started out kind of as an assistant. And then three years later, he too was just doing his own landscapes and, and like all kinds of other things like these houses. I mentioned earlier Al Black. So he apparently was just this really good sales guy. So they hired him as a salesman. And then um, what happened was, yeah, like I mentioned, the paint would still be wet. And sometimes when he's transporting them, parts would get smudged. So he had to learn how to mix paint to fix some of these paintings while he's on the road. So through learning how to fix them, he learned how to paint. And he then was just like, all right, I'm going to do my own paintings. What a fun way to learn how to paint. Wait, talk about trial by fire. I mean, having to figure out how to mix paint to match a color and to fix the smudge in a painting like while a customer is standing there, that's amazing. Like, No wonder he learned quickly um, and became a, a, a great artist in this group. Yeah, and so um, anyway, like I... Kind of, I was looking into, um, you know, kind of how they, like, how and why they became popular, like, even, or how they were, they managed to sell all these paintings. There are some theories to why, but, um, it really just seemed like, like a lot of people just really, especially people in Florida were just like really drawn to these works. They were like, cause they were, representing like the landscape like and what they saw every day and they're of course just done in these like really beautiful um and vivid colors these works ended up in like churches like offices beauty salons like lawyers and doctors offices and like motels and just basically basically all kinds of places and again like there were 200,000 
um, that were produced during this time. And what happened was, um, unfortunately, in the in in 1970, um, this was kind of at the height of their careers, and they were selling paintings like mad. Um, unfortunately, there was an incident uh, where Alfred Hare he was at a local bar and he got into apparently some sort of like conflict or confrontation with someone and uh he was shot and killed at age oh. 29 oh no yeah so it's it, i mean obviously it's really sad like yeah he was only 29 and like so young and so talented but not only was it sad like that he passed away because of this the group kind of just fell apart because he really was the leader of this group. Because again, not other people, they were just farm workers who didn't really know how to run a business, for lack of a better term. And he was really the only person who knew how to keep that together. Um, so yeah, by, by 1980, kind of most of them just weren't able to sell their works anymore or stop painting altogether. Um, and like I said, it wasn't until the 90s when there was this renewed interest in their works that they became more widely known throughout the rest of the United States. And some of them started painting again because they realized, you know, they were able to sell their works again. But this time, instead of selling for $25, it was like, $5,000 or $10,000 or more. Today, though, um, so I did read that a lot of their works actually now sell for up to tens of thousands of dollars and probably, you know, some of the more like rare and older ones could go for even higher. In 2004, the group was inducted to the Florida like Artist Hall of Fame. And in 2011, um, Michelle Obama actually invited Marianne Carroll to the White House uh, to present one of her paintings. And there's actually an interview with her where she's just like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is happening. Like, how is this my life? Like, obviously she was just like, I was just painting and selling artworks on the side of the highway. And then in 2011, she was in the White House. Wow. That's kind of like an overview of their career and how they developed this like business and how they got their artworks out there. And because of these renewed interests in the 90s and probably even now, like I would say ever since the 90s, like there's been this interest in what's called folk art or outsider art, which are usually like art that's reflective of like the cultural life of a community, but it's generally rejected by traditional art institutions and mainstream art galleries and places like that. Like there's just more, there's more interest in these, you know, like alternative non-mainstream work by more people, which is really great for these artists who were kind of like underappreciated. But I think what is still interesting to think about is, um, despite the fact that, you know, we look at these paintings where like, these are beautiful and amazing, like folk art and artworks like this is still to this day deemed by, you know, like kind of academic institutions as not as valuable as, you know, traditional like art of people who are traditionally trained so there is still like there's still always this like stigma that this is like just folk art this is this is done by people who are non-professional the fairly abrupt end to this group in terms of their de facto leader really tragically dying young and then things not really um keeping up after his death is so sad and i am glad to hear 
that they have been recognized more in the decades since and that people have gone back and done at least some amount of correction of the record there and saying like, oh, okay, like these were really interesting artists and they do deserve to be remembered and talked about and uh, commemorated in ways as little as this podcast or as big as the White House. <laughs> um, but also I, the whole point you ended that with, with the way that big establishments decide what is and isn't like worthy of recognition is such an ongoing problem. It's such a self-perpetuating problem because, you know, we we don't talk about anyone on this podcast who isn't like recognized by some art museum in some way because like we don't know about other people because we're don't work in art and we do, like so it's just like but you see the way that like even though I think that this both of us and this podcast like has an extremely strong stance of like believing in uh, the, a very wide definition of art and believing that these certain types of art are so under recognized like even we lack the ability to recognize a lot of those because the structures that be don't and so it's such a self-perpetuating cycle which is really sad. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, what is kind of good about this, at least this group of artists, um, is that like because of this recognition, um, their artworks um, have gotten into some museums. They are represented in a bunch of um, Florida art and art history museums, and they there are um, eighteen of their works in the National Museum of African American History in Washington D.C. So it is you know it is possible for us to see them uh, or, you know, for in um, public collections, which is good because the majority of their artworks are in private collections. Although, um, you know, certain collectors have been kind of donating them or loaning them to, uh, to museums, you know, kind of around the U.S. So the other thing that is great for these artists, like having recognition is that they kind of ever since the 90s, they no longer have to do this fast assembly line type of situation. A lot of them have been able to, you know, take more time to develop more detailed and larger works. Um, and so at the uh, bottom of the show notes, I just kind of gave like three examples of artworks that were done by uh, one of them is um, Carnell Smith. So you'll remember the like, like the really sketchy impressionistic house, but now he's able to do like, um, he's actually unfortunately since then has passed away, but at this time he was able to do more detailed um, paintings. And then another one is um, an example of a work that was done by Marianne Carroll in 2019. Um, and then the third one is an example of um, a work that was done by uh uh, Chico Wheeler, who, uh, and this work was painted in 2010. So as far as I know, based on my research, nine out of the 26 highwaymen are still alive. And I think all of them, but one, as far as 2019, were, are still painting to this day. Most of them are in their 70s and 80s, but they're still painting and they're still selling their artworks, but now they can do it in more detail and take more time doing them. Wow, I am so glad to hear that uh, the ones who are still alive and hopefully the ones who have passed away like up until that point are, you know, still in art and still doing that work and now have the chance to actually get some more compensation for it. I do have to say real quick when you, you said earlier, like, oh, 
at least, you know, hundreds of thousands of paintings or whatever are in private collections. It's interesting because I feel like most of the time when you hear like, oh, all of their work is in private collections, it's really tragic because that usually means like 10 rich people. But this <laughs> means like actually just the entire population of Florida um, <laughs> like has these paintings in their home. You know, that's kind of more the vibe. Um, and that while, of course, I'm sure tons of them have been lost or destroyed or just, you know, misplaced over the years because there are just so many in circulation it's also really cool to think about like how many just ordinary people probably have these paintings in their homes that is a really good point um because yeah again like unlike a lot of other unlike these you know traditional artworks that we've talked about before uh, these types of works are more accessible to you know common every average everyday people because again they're you know that that's that's that was their market that was who they were selling to i i'm sure like you know um around florida there's still places that um that have these these artworks like in their in doctor's offices and uh beauty salons um one thing i will mention is that most of these artworks are signed um but some are actually unsigned so I don't know if you if you after hearing this podcast want to start collecting high women uh, paintings, you know, just make sure you're actually getting an authentic one. <laughs> hey, good point. Yeah. Um, and the only other thing I'll mention is that there have been two two PBS documentaries that have been made about them. If you want to learn more, uh, one of them is called The Highwaymen, Florida's Outsider Artists from 2003. And the other one is called The Highwaymen, Legends of the Road. So th I think they're hour-long documentaries and there are interviews with um, some of the highwaymen who were still alive at the time, including Marianne Carroll. So some additional resources if people are interested. There are so many great links in the show notes this week uh, from all of the pictures of everything we talked about today and uh, those further resources to check out. Uh, so definitely um, go check out our show notes at relay.fm slash pictorial. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram at pictorialpod. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram at aspiringrobotfm. And you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Articulations V. And I am also on YouTube as Articulations. And speaking of YouTube, we also have a YouTube channel, Pictorial Podcast, where you can watch some of our podcasts um, a few weeks after the audio versions have been released. And you can see the artworks go by on the video. And I, I definitely encourage you to check out the ones in this podcast. Thanks for listening, art enthusiasts.